You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week is Bike Week at Strong Towns. We are talking about all things cycling. And who better to chat with than our old friend, John Zimmerman. John, I don't know what you if you're the executive director or the, the head guru. You're the guy who founded Active Towns. And he, yeah, I tend to just call it that. <laughs> Founder. <laughs> you know, I'm not big into titles either, but sometimes they, you got to have them for, you know, things like this. So John travels around the country sharing his love of all things active. And I wanted to sit down and chat with him a little bit today for Biking Week. So John, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Hey, Chuck. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to... Uh, uh, see you, talk with you, and the opportunity to to absorb, uh, you know, the, the strong town's message as it uh, continues to grow and evolve over the years. Well, likewise, we've had a lot of fun. You're one of these guys who got a hold of me very early on in strong towns, and kind of, you know, pushed me a little bit to keep doing, you know, what we were doing, and and you were a big part of helping us figure out how we could best serve the world. And, and so, yeah, I, I love chatting with you too. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chuck. And, and uh, yeah, I can remember back to some of our early conversations, including uh, when I came to visit you there in, uh, in Brainerd. And, you know, in that conversation, we talked a little bit about, you know, what it takes to, you know, make a community a more walkable, bikeable place. And one of the things that I mentioned to you at the time was, uh, get out there and do it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I know you're embracing that, uh, you know, much more now. So, you know, in your own, uh, personal life and, and personal situation there in, in Brainerd. I think of you a lot because you said to me, and this was like three years ago, you, you said Brainerd's actually a really good biking town. And it's funny because I did not think of it that way, but my biking had been mostly commuting and commuting fr from a distance and through Baxter, which is a, a suburban hell for biking. Now that I live in Brainerd, Brainerd is not a bad town for biking. I find it very easy to get around and get around with the kids and get pretty much anywhere. I always think of you, you know, when I run across something new and say, you know, John, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah. And, and, and you know this, but I'll say this, you know, formally, you know, it warms my heart that you and your family are now in, in a position, in a situation um, where you can, you know, have this environment where you can, you know, live in, in the community and be able to, you know, walk and bike to school and you can walk or bike to work. And, uh, you know, that's, that's good stuff. I mean, that's, that's cool. It's a big part of what, uh, active towns is all about. It's a big part of what strong towns is all about. It really is a blessing. And I have to say the thing I was not prepared for was Stella, the younger one and her like embrace of it and, and how just liberating it is for her. 38 degrees out this morning. Guess what she insisted we do? Bike to school. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I'm like, this kid's a trooper. She's, uh, she loves it. So let's just give the background on Active Towns. 
Talk a little bit about the organization, what, what you're trying to do and, and how you go about doing that. It originally started, I, I incorporated um, in the 2012 uh, timeframe as advocates for, for healthy communities. That's our, our formal 501c3 registered you know, name. Early on in 2012, I was, I was you know, really trying to explore what it was about communities that uh, you know, were conducive to healthy, active living. And specifically, I was actually talking with Ironman distance athletes, and I was you know, trying to understand, because these people are out in the community 20 hours a week of training. You know, who better to ask about, hey, you know, what do you like about your communities and how do these communities, you know, help support your way of life, which is a lifestyle of, you know, swimming, biking, running all the time. And some of the things that came back were just really phenomenal. You know, I was able to to, to reach out to, to folks in 47, you know, different states and 13 different countries. And, you know, the, the response back was that, you know, hey, we chose to live in this particular area. We chose to live in this community or this uh, particular region because it was conducive to our lifestyle. And more specifically, they would say, you know, I chose to live in this town because it's an active town. It's you know, a place that is, embraces that culture. And when I dug a little bit deeper, I started to, to identify some commonalities and some things of what I call activity assets. They're the physical things that are you know, out there in the community. You can map it out. You can put a pen in the map and say, yeah, over here, we've got a high-quality rec center and park. Over here, we've got you know, a, a pathway or trail that takes people to meaningful destinations and, you know, serves both a utilitarian and recreational purpose. And over here, you know, we've got streets that are, you know, friendly for people, you know, where people feel like they can run, they can bike, they can, you know, exist in. And, in a, and there's many more different types of physical activities like that. It's what I call the hardware. And then there's the software activity assets. These are the programs and the events and the policies that really bring the hardware to life because it isn't true. If you just build it, they may not come. You have to activate things. You have to do things in, in, in a way where you can invigorate the, the environment that has been created and at the same time have the management processes in place and the constant evaluation and tweaking that must take place. And that's the software. So that's the programming that brings the hardware to life. Yeah, and so I've been literally traveling around the country, around the world, trying to document, profile, and and celebrate the programs, the places, and the people that are helping to create a culture of activity in their communities. And about a year ago, I you know started to delve into the world of filmmaking and trying to tell that story. Hopefully, you know, eventually in a compelling way that will resonate outside of you know, our echo chamber. I mean, you know, I mean, you know what I mean by our totally. echo chamber. Absolutely. Of, yeah. You know, of people we run into at this conference and that conference and, and hopefully permeating into, you know, the, the general population of trying to educate about the possibilities that are out there and, and giving folks uh, an opportunity to maybe start to embrace a different lifestyle, a different way of life. Uh, just like you and your family are now embracing, you know, a different lifestyle, a different way of life. So that's kind of where we're at right now is, is you know, trying to take on the, 
the really, really big challenge of creating content and distributing content out into the masses and hopefully generating more enthusiasm out of doing a better job of creating place, place that, you know, encourages healthy, active living. You and I are good friends with one of the nation's premier planners, urban designers, a guy named Victor Dover. It's funny because the other day, Victor, since I have known him, has been this guy in tip-top shape and, you know, does the Ironman and, and is, you know, triathlete. And I saw this picture of him the other day that he posted on Facebook of like tubby Victor. I'm not making fun of him because he was, you know, but he's like, this was me at 250 pounds. Wow. I want you to get personal just for a second and talk a little bit how biking specifically fits into your life and why you think it is an, it's an important thing for us to even be talking about this week. Biking in particular is, is just so incredibly powerful from a utilitarian perspective, as well as from a health perspective, as well as it's just so much gosh darn fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, totally. It's hard. I mean, you know, People for Bikes, which is an advocacy organization at the national level, it's, it's actually funded by all of the bicycle industry manufacturers. They put out a wonderful, fun video um, that you could you know, easily Google or find it on YouTube, and it's called Shed the Monster. And it was a wonderful little video because it, you know, shows a guy who's just like, he's having a really, really bad day. And, and they've got him dressed up in a costume where he looks like a werewolf. And, you know, he's, he's having a bad day. Nothing's going right, et cetera. He, he goes to, to, to get in the car. There's no car. He's like, ah. He reluctantly grabs his old bike out of uh, the garage and, and, and goes off to run the errand that he needed to run, which I think was go down to the, the grocery store and get a, a carton of milk. And the whole theme of it was is shed the monster. As he's riding, you know, he breathes in the fresh air. He's starting to interact with people around him. And, you know, as he's riding, the fur's flying off of him. He's shedding the monster that, you know, is our new modern life that we have in our society. And, and we think about, you know, well, it, it's really no surprise how road rage comes out and how frustration with driving and, and the whole act of driving is such an unsatisfactory experience, you know, if you run into things that slow you down. And it's part of, I think, our societal expectations of what we have for when we get behind the, the wheel of a car. We expect to be able to drive that car up to its capacity, up to its ability to hurl us through space at inhuman speeds. Versus when you're on a bike, you know, yeah, you can you can get on your racing bike and you can, you know, have a day where you want to push yourself and try to go fast, but you can also, you know, get on a more relaxed bike and or even a bike share bike and just go for an enjoyable ride or you know, be able to have what what's called a you know, a pedestrian accelerator or an extender of where you know, biking for utilitarian purposes is just a mechanism or a way to be able to expand the radius of how far you can go, you know, when you're looking at a utilitarian or, or functional uh, mechanism. And I'll, I'll use my, you know, th my morning as an example. You know, I strolled out of the condo and checked out a, a bike share uh, B-cycle bike and, you know, rode on a whole 
bunch of different facilities, which we can talk a little bit about later. But the bottom line, I was able to, after you know, 10, 15 minutes, be able to ride all the way to the Austin Convention Center to attend the morning sessions for the South by Southwest um, Eco Conference that's going on this week. And it's just, you know, that's what biking means to me is it's just there's a great deal of joy. There's a great deal of utilitarian purpose to that. And yes, it's also healthy and fun. I want to drill down into the hardware part and the software part. Let's start a little bit with the hardware. My city just went out and for $500, there's two sides of this because it took them three years to figure out to do this. But they, they eventually spent $500 on paint and they put Sharrows in all over the place. Sharrows are like the starter edition of bike infrastructure. But in terms of like a, a mental change, I look at it, I thought, wow, this is, you know, for 500 bucks, this is a fantastic investment. Talk a little bit about just basic, like 101, what do cities need to do to be more bike friendly? Um, yeah, it's a, that's a wonderful question. And, you know, the reality is, too, and, and you know this, is cities, whether they have accepted this or not, they must become more pedestrian and bike friendly, period. If they wish to be competitive and successful in the future, in the new economy, you know, be able to address what, you know, quote unquote, the younger generations are expecting and wanting out of life. You, you actually must be that because there, there's just not that same relationship with uh, traditional, you know, automobile ownership. And I get that, you know, technology may change, you know, certain aspects of it or not, but just focusing on the, the built environment and how cities, you know, can go about doing that. The number one thing that, that cities need to be able to do is embrace, you know, at least in our society, we're, we're seeing that European cities, especially larger European cities, are embracing this already, big surprise, is we've got to slow down the cars. In an environment where we're going to have mixing of modes, mixing of people in motor vehicles, people riding motor vehicles, people using transit, people walking from said transit or people just walking period, and some people on uh, bikes and, and tricycles and, and maybe even quad cycles at some point in time, you know, that human-powered element. When we mix those, speed is a killer. And we all know the statistics about the vulnerability and, you know, you know, the whole, you know, 80-20 sort of philosophy of going from, you know, 20 miles per hour in the fatality rates, you know, all the way up to 45 miles per hour in the fatality rates. And the, and the bottom line, especially with many cities trying to embrace the concept of Vision Zero, is it, it, it comes down to we have to slow the cars down. And the commonality of, or and the beauty of that, that concept of when we slow the cars down, especially in intensive, congested, urban environments, downtown business districts, and also in residential areas, those two different types of areas, when we look at those and separate them out from our you know, sprawl corridors along Strodes and things along those lines. When we look at those, that residential and that downtown intensive environment, you know, speed, high speeds are the common denominator that make the environment less safe, less inviting, you know, for somebody who is walking or biking. So it's, it's antithetical to 
everything that we talk about within you know strong towns as well as in active towns. And let me just ask you a clarifying question before you go on too. You're talking about median speeds too, not the deviant. I, I think oftentimes we focus on like the deviant, the person who's ripping through the neighborhood. And, and of course they're, they're a danger regardless, but you're actually talking about the casual everyday driver, the median person, the typical driver, just, you know, operating at speeds that are excessive and unsafe. Am I clarifying that correctly? Yeah, no, you, you absolutely are getting it right on the head there because it doesn't take the the conversation very long to then say, okay, well, what's the design speed of the street in this environment? And when you, you take a step back and you look at it and you go, well, you know, this is a ridiculously wide lane, you know, that encourages speeding and, and which we all know is, is one of the most common factors is that highway design mentality has then been implied into inappropriately applied into residential streets as well as into downtown business district and streets where we want to have vitality, we want to have life, we want to have people outside of their cars existing to, you know, to shop and to exist and to, to be on the outdoor cafes. You're absolutely right. I mean, when we look at how we design the streets, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, no brainer. We've got a 14-foot lane or a 12-foot lane, whereas, you know, it just – it it encourages us to, as motor vehicle drivers, to, to drive it at fast speeds. What do you say to the, the engineer who says, well, I, I need a 14-foot lane because then the bike can, can go on one side and the car can, can pass them easily? The 14-foot lane is, is a lot like the 40-foot road, you know, the 40-foot curb to curb. It's a really, really difficult, you know, width to, to, to deal with. And I think what we have to do is we have to bring the discussion around to common sense and understanding, and we know that common sense is not common practice, but bringing the discussion around to, well, what would you feel comfortable with your daughter riding on? And, and it might be that, you know, a 14-foot lane, we have to put these things in context. It's, it's probably not the measurement that matters. It's the behavior that matters in that environment. So if it's a, an environment where, again, the, the prevailing speeds are at lethal levels, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to feel, you know, comfortable riding to school with your daughter if, you know, folks are buzzing by you at ridiculously high speeds, you know, you might get one every once in a while and you're, and you're, you know, you, you're like, hey, waving at them. And, and, you know, if it actually turns out to be somebody that you recognize, you know, you, you sort of have the eyes on the street and it's like, hey, dude, you know, slow it down a little, man. Or people, you know, in communities, they, they start then saying, you know what, we do have an issue here. We have speeding in our residential neighborhoods here and they start putting out signs, you know, drive as if your children, you know, play here, live here, et cetera. And then people start, you know, speaking up about, you know, their communities and their downtown environments and saying, you know what, we've, we got to slow the cars down. You know, this is killing our environment here. So a lot of it is awareness, Chuck. A lot of it is, and that's what I'm trying to do with the Active Towns initiatives is to try to tell the success stories that are out there and, and, and do so in, in such a way that it resonates with and, and 
Um, and, and the average ordinary person that, you know, doesn't think in, in terms of, you know, the acronyms that we use and our, our language, you know, they're not going to know what a strode is. Right. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's got to resonate with them personally. And what they can tell you is, you know what, it's, I don't feel safe walking or biking in my community because people are driving too fast. And so you take it at that, that, that common denominator then and say, okay, well, what can we do to help make this a more inviting, safer environment and then you can start looking at your palette of choices. And maybe it is redrawing lines on a 14-foot lane. Maybe it's, you know, taking a look at a, a corridor, taking a look at an entire network and saying, well, how do we have, you know, how can we cobble together uh, a combination of maybe some streets have absolutely no infrastructure on them and maybe they don't need them. Maybe they're a quiet residential street and quite comfortable to ride on. Maybe some streets are going to be a little wider and be able to provide the opportunity to, uh, you know, put a bike lane in. Maybe, you know, ideally a buffered or a protected bike lane. Maybe even a parking protected bike lane. And what's really wonderful about what we have seen, and you'll know what I mean by this, in the last five years there's been this explosion of what we're calling tactical urbanism. There's this, this explosion of demonstration projects of being able to, to pull out to and help and, the, and have engage the community and help them design what their neighborhoods could look like. Maybe even pulling in some hay bales or some potted plants and say, well, this, let's kind of, let's get a feel for what it would look like and what it would feel like if we had a protected bike lane in our neighborhood, in our downtown area. You know, what would it look like? What would it feel like if, you know, this parking spot was replaced with, you know, a parklet or, you know, cafe seating for the cafe across, you know, right there across the uh, the sidewalk? So that's, I think, one of our, our real exciting things that, that has, you know, really emerged and, and taken hold of in the last, uh, you know, five years. And, you know, many folks are doing it. You know, the, the Better Block folks are, are doing things of that nature and, you uh, and Tony and Mike Leiden with the Tactical Urbanism uh, book, you know, are a big part of that movement. And and I know you've even done a little bit of that, you know, in Brainerd of, of trying to engage the public and trying to see and feel what it would be like to, to have a different, you know, an alternate reality in terms of what the streetscape could look like and be able to see streets as places versus just conduits or, you know, or a, you know, a, a traffic sewer, you know, going through. So less of an emphasis on trying to get people through places quickly and more of an emphasis on, um, on safety and enjoying the experience. And maybe even, you know, in the case of like a downtown area, it's, you know, it, it's, it's not to, to flow through, it's to flow to as well. When they put the sharrows out, and I, it just occurred to me as you were talking that maybe we should explain what a sharrow is. In our case here, it was just like a, it looks like a sergeant stripes. It's like three little stripes on the street with then like a painted biker on it. It's a relatively common thing. And I think that, you know, even brand new listeners, you know, to the podcast that, you know, maybe this is the first time they're hearing Cheryl. Now that you've described it, you know, with the two chevrons and the, and the, the painted, you know, uh, stencil of a bicycle there, they've probably seen them. And you're absolutely right. It's like the it's like the starter thing. Now, what's important to understand is that there's an inappropriate use 
of that particular application. The interesting thing to me when they put them in was the reaction of some of my neighbors. I love these people. They're beautiful. Three months in this neighborhood, we've gotten to know a lot of people. But the reaction was kind of like, eh, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure I like this. The other counter reaction that I saw was since I've been biking a lot and I mean, every day in this neighborhood, all over the place, I'm the only one that bikes in the street. Everyone else, and I mean, except for my kids and me, everyone else bikes on the sidewalks. Talk a little bit about the Shero, the reaction, the sidewalk biking. When you would look, look at a place like that, what, do you, what is your diagnosis of that? Well, uh, it's a mixture of things. A lot of it is confusion. A lot of it is not understanding. And uh, a lot of it is, you know, is self-preservation from some people's perspective in terms of, no, I'm sorry. It just even though Chuck is is out there and riding his bike with his daughters, and you know I'm not comfortable there, and I'm going to be on the sidewalk over here. Um, and I don't have a problem. I'm not a fundamentalist of saying, well, the bikes must be on the road. They are transportation. I don't I don't buy into that whole mentality. I'm not that fundamentalist about such things. What matters most to me is that we put it into context and we make sure that it makes sense. When we, when we talk about this concept of creating an environment that's going to encourage healthy, active living and, and sociability and, you know, stenciling a sharrow on a 35 to 45 mile an hour road, that's not appropriate. That's a cop out. That's basically saying, you know, hey, yeah, we got this you know, luck, four eh? <laughs> road here, and you know, it's like here, we, you guys have been screaming at us, so here we'll throw you a bone and circle yeah. it down there. And, and that's and the message, the Shero, the message is, is that you know, hey, the the bikes can use the full lane. The bikes can be in this lane, and a, an appropriate placed Shero is is literally in the middle of the traveling. It's not. It's not off to the right in what would be, would be called the door zone. <laughs> You're not trying to encourage people on bikes to ride in, a, in an area where a door can fling out and hit them. You're right. It's a starter, you know, sort of maneuver of, of saying, you know, hey, in these residential areas, and I'm going to make an assumption that these are actually kind of in the residential areas. It's, they correct? all are. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So what it's really doing is saying, hey, look, folks. They do have a right to be on the road. So it's a dual communication device. It's communicating to the cyclists that, hey, you do belong here. And it's communicating to the motor vehicle drivers that, hey, heads up, you should expect that you may encounter a child riding on, the bu- on their bike you know, in this lane. It's important to understand, too, that there are conflict points that, that could happen out there in the street. That is true. But there's also conflict points that can happen if we choose to ride our bikes on the sidewalks or choose to ride our bikes, uh, you know, if a, if a city goes the step further and widens the sidewalk, you know, from a standard width to doubling that size and making it, you know, like a 12-foot wide shared-use path, you know, there's going to be mixing of modes there as well. And so then it becomes imperative on the person who's on the bike to understand that they're now in an environment where they're not the most vulnerable user. The pedestrian is the most vulnerable user, especially if it happens to be, you know, a more frail, you know, elderly person. So 
you know, it's, again, I'm not a fundamentalist and I wouldn't say to somebody, well, you know, it doesn't matter that you don't feel comfortable riding in the street. You should be in the street. Get off that sidewalk. Even though some people, you know, in the quote unquote bicycling movement in the past have been that fundamentalist. I just don't go there. I don't think that that type of dialogue is, is helpful to our cause. Because really, when we, when we take a step back, our cause is not about um, the bikes, and the cause is not about bike lanes, and the cause is, is really about creating a, you know, a better working, more healthy, uh, more inviting environment for everybody, regardless of how they choose to get around whether it be for recreation purposes or for utilitarian purposes. When I run into someone biking on the sidewalk, I interpret it here locally as I don't feel safe in the street. And so I say, hey, dude, um, come on out here. <laughs> you know, like I'm safer and you're safer if we're both out here, because the more people see us out biking, the more they're going to expect us out here. You know, yeah, and, and and you may not even have to be that upfront about it. Sure. You may not have to to, to to be so much as to say, "Hey, dude," you you know, smiling and waving, and having your da- daughter smiling and waving. Yeah. Is, yeah, you know, it goes back to the conversation that I had with you. You know, back in 2013, is you know, we as a human species, we are a herding species, and when we see other people out there doing an activity and it looks enjoyable, and it kind of fits with what we know we should be doing a little bit more of, meaning getting some physical activity in, it, it's, it's a reinforcement. And so just being out there, being cheerful and waving and smiling is probably as overt as you ever need to do. You don't have to, like, be so bold as to tell them, you know, you shouldn't be over there. Very good so, point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always say, hey, you can, you can come join me. Like. <laughs> Yeah, I'll show you the ropes. (laughs) That's a good point, Chuck, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, you know, I encouraged you guys to, you know, to to consider the the possibility. And I think it was you and Justin that I, you know, mentioned it to is, hey, you know, go out and walk to downtown, go go and do that and and do, you know, and that that's something that, you know, actively could happen within the community is a mentor program. So now you're starting to get around to the software the encouragement, engagement activities that then can help activate the environment and get more people living a, a healthy, active lifestyle. Hey, just because you brought up Justin, um, this is just insider for you and me and the people who were with us like three or four years ago. Justin lives like two blocks from me now. He used to live way out of town and and he moved into this neighborhood and then like six months later I did. So yeah, we're well, I'm grinning. I'm grinning ear to ear. That uh, dude, is so cool to hear. We have so much fun. <laughs> we have so much fun. So, okay. I want to give you another reaction that I've gotten and have you kind of put this in context as well. So one of the other reactions I got is, well, if, if you're going to have bikes, you should really have bike lanes or trails, most preferably. We shouldn't really have the bikes out in the street. Uh, we should have some trails or, you know, something that would get them I think the reaction I get mostly is I'm driving and I'm scared having the bikes here. So I would prefer they're on a bike lane somewhere or a, I don't think they really mean a lane like in the street. I think they mean a, a like a trail, you know, mm-hmm. bikes. Like belong, it, yeah. it, it's the notion that bikes belong on trails, not on, mm-hmm. not on streets. Give that some context. 
Well, again, I think it has to be context sensitive, um, you know, based on the environment that we're talking about. So, again, if we're we're talking about in a quiet, leafy neighborhood, you know, maybe you don't even have sidewalks in this quiet, leafy, leafy neighborhood. And. And, you know, people will routinely be walking, you know, biking, you know, pushing baby strollers in the street. And inherently, it's about as safe an environment as you can do it. It's a shared street environment of a different nature, um, you know, than, than what we were, you know, kind of talking about, you know, like when Ben Hamilton Bailey was, you know, talking about shared streets in an urban environment, in a downtown environment. But the premise is all the same. It's like... Yeah, it may make you feel uncomfortable, driver, um, but that's exactly the point. We want you, the driver, to be feel uncomfortable so that you will slow down. Again, it's the, the concept that Hans Monderman talked about when he talked about a, you know, if you can get the driver to feel, you know, uncomfortable and feel like it's dangerous to them to drive, they will slow down, you know, and be able to do that. Now, my rule of thumb is as follows. If it's a, an environment that is inherently designed to encourage motor vehicles to travel at speeds, you know, routinely in the 25 miles per hour or excess, and, and I'm one who believes that 20 is plenty. I, I really think that residential areas and dense um, business district environments need to be ideally shooting for that 20 miles per hour or less. And that's, that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. We're on the same page there. So yeah. Yeah. And so, but if you're getting into an environment where there is no political will to, to, to slow the traffic down and it's like, no, sorry, this is going to be 30 miles an hour or more, then you really have to start having those discussions of, of, okay, well then we need separated facilities for pedestrians, obviously. And if, if it works for pedestrians to have separated facilities, it works for the concept that, that, that people riding bikes should be treated no differently. They need and deserve to also have a separated facility of some sort. Again, the new sort of standard approach or baseline in terms of what is acceptable is starting to be what's called a buffered bike lane or a protected bike lane whether that's protected with some, you know, some planters or a hard concrete median, you know, God forbid if we have to keep putting more and more of the white plastic six sticks up, but, um, or parked cars, you know, if, if it's a street where they're just like, Hey, we're not giving up our parked cars. Great. Don't mind. We're just going to scoot your parked cars closer to the travel lanes because guess what? We also have a speeding problem on this street. We really do need people to drive more carefully and more slowly and and be able to create a protected bike lane and be able to do that. So getting to the mentality though of, you know, hey, bikes should not be allowed in the right of way at all and they really should be over on side paths and and you know you know other multi-use paths that are created. It's like, hey, great, you've got the money to do that, then do that. But I don't know very many, you know, communities around the, the United States that have the ability to do that. Um, routinely in the Netherlands and in Denmark and in Sweden, um, and Laura and I had the opportunity to ride some of these the, in, through between these cities, 
there would be wonderful side paths that would go, you know, many kilometers from city to city. And, uh, and we were able to travel around, you know, quite extensively, you know, coupling together transit rides and then get out on the Bromptons and, and ride, you know, from one city to the next and be on a completely separated path. Once we would get into the city center then, then you had a mixture of shared streets, you know, the slow speed, shared environments, shared um, oftentimes with, with cars and bikes, um, and those are considered bicycle priority streets, usually, you know, designed and uh, signed at a 30-kilometer-per-hour 30 speed. And then, you know, sometimes it's, it was shared with, with pedestrians as well, so all three modes, you know, in there, with sometimes even transit thrown in as, as the fourth mode, you know, going through that corridor. And then in other cases, they, they continued the concept of the, the grade-separated uh, space, the grade-separated lanes for, for the cycles, you know, for people riding on a bike. Um, so the bottom line, Chuck, is that there's so many different ways to approach this. But if we go back to the common denominator of what can we do to calm the motor vehicle traffic speeds, make this a safer environment, a more welcoming environment for everyone. And, you know, so if we use safety and attractiveness and uh, making a welcoming, inviting environment for everyone, um, I think that's a, that's a good kind of bring us back to reality before we start having this bikes versus cars argument. Um, the, the argument that kind of comes up of, of, you know, recreation trails versus utilitarian, you know, bike lanes and all that, these are all distractions in my mind because ultimately they're, they're all very, very flexible facilities. I feel like you're getting back to the roads and streets comparison. I've always argued we can fit everybody in a crate street. You know, you, you just got to have a, a design mind to it. But if, if your ethic is this is a street about creating wealth, you, you're all about access and, and making things comfortable for people and uh, not about speed at all. It, it seems like if you have that mindset, you can make a lot happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then it gets down to the details. Then it gets down to, okay, well, there's many ways to do this. How do we do it? And, and you, can, you can then start looking, okay, well, our right-of-way is, is this width. And, you know, then there's a whole palette of, of tools, including, well, let's make the pedestrian realm even bigger so we can add cafes. Let's do this. Let's shift things over. Let's, you know, hey, let's slow this traffic down. Let's make this, this overly wide five-lane one-way, a two-way, and in doing so, let's, you know, there, there is some on-street parking, and so let's, you know, let's retain some of that or all of it, and by using that, we can make, create a protected bike lane, you know, and then and likewise, and sometimes you get into those really, really awkward widths of, you know, 40 you know, feet, what the heck are you going to do with that? There's not enough room for everyone. And so you're, you're like, okay, well, let's get creative. And, and what's our bottom line is if, and here's the, here's the part that goes back to what I talked about earlier with the you know, sort of the tactical urbanism thing was how do you engage the public in a productive way so that they don't feel like this is something that is a top-down um, move that is being done. This has to be able to bubble up, this has to be able to you know, be something that is, is 
is there where they are engaged in the decision. I want to ask you a question before we transition to software, because I, I think the software discussion is fascinating, too, and, and we don't want to kind of overlook that. I want you to contrast biking in a place like New York City or, you know, Austin, if you want, or Vancouver, where I think for a lot of us, we look at it and say, wow, they, they've got it figured out. But, but anybody who's been to these places knows, you know, it's contentious there. It's difficult there. Yes, there's some great bike networks and they've really done a lot. But, you know, the, these are not maybe the utopias we think. And then contrast that with some of the other end of the spectrum. I mean, I, I would say a place like Brainerd, where we've given very little thought to bike systems, but actually, as you pointed out to me, and, and I've kind of affirmed here, it's actually kind of a bike-friendly place. It actually works pretty well. And boy, if we just had a little bit of a different ethic, uh, it would be a, a bike mecca kind of place. Can you talk a little bit about what we can maybe learn from these different environments and, and I think maybe humble ourselves and, and, you know, learn those lessons from each other? Yeah, I, I think one of the, the, the most important things that, that we can try to remind ourselves with is that we don't need to make this more complicated than it actually is. And to use the example of a, a smaller city or a small town, and, you know, they're just like, what, they're, they're flabbergasted. What do you mean bike lanes? You know, da 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 is to realize that, you know, prior to there being, you know, 2.5 motor vehicles in every household, you know, a lot of how we got around in these smaller towns was to walk and bike. And so we have to understand that a part of the, the fact that this isn't all that, you know, massively foreign, you know, somebody who is, you know, 40 plus, you know, 50 plus, when you're having that discussion, especially if they're the ones that are just beside themselves and, and hurling vitriol at, at the public meeting about the concept of putting in a bike lane, it's like, well, wait a minute, guys, time out. How did you get around your town where you grew up? And more than likely, they're going to say, yeah, you know, I, I jumped on the bike and, and I, or I walked and, you know, I got around, you know. Why? Because the reality of the United States that existed before we kind of went on this horizontal expansion is that we did get around. That was commonplace. And I guarantee you that was a big part of how people got around in Brainerd, too. So what, what's happened with our sort of automobile orientation as it's been applied with a paintbrush across large and small cities and towns is that we, we've created that expectation that we get in the car for every trip, no matter how short it is. And that's, that's unfortunate because it's not necessary. So for the smaller towns like the Brainerds and the, you know, and, and the cities like that, when I, when I kind of roll up onto town, I pull out my folding bike and I go for a bike ride and I'm like, wow, these are some quiet residential streets and some wonderfully, you know, uh, you know, wonderfully comfortable, um, downtown or oriented streets. And really my only big problem is this massive strode that cuts through the middle of it. And the only thing I want to do on that street is pretty much figure out a way to get safely across it. And then once I'm safely across it, then I'm, you know, off into, you know, another environment. We contrast that with the big cities that you're referring to where it's much more active. It's much more dense. There's much more, you know, vitality and things going on. And 
if every single person that needed to get anywhere were to get into a single single occupancy vehicle to do their deeds, whatever they are, we'd have mass chaos and mass, you know, congestion and gridlock. Much more, you know, and I know everybody thinks we're in gridlock now, but just imagine what Manhattan would be if nobody were walking, (laughs) you know? A, a place where, you know, the, the people taking transit and people walking and biking outnumber people in single occupancy motor vehicles by many, many, many fold. So, yes, you are seeing the, the trend in our larger cities as well as our emerging and regenerating cities, you know, cities everywhere from Buffalo to, you know, we just saw Detroit recently, these cities where revitalization is coming back, what we're seeing is the leading edge of that revitalization is also including um, the, the, the walking and biking as part of it and the transit as, as, as part of it as well. It's not being this, this vibrancy and this revitalization of the cities big and small and medium size are you know, around this concept that it's not going to be about the single occupancy vehicle. I want to talk about software. You know, planners and engineers like to focus on the hardware because they like to just build stuff. But I I can't agree with you more. Unless you activate people, unless you kind of change the the conversation, it's not going to happen. I I want to start with this though. I mentioned Victor earlier. What a, what a beautiful man. Um, he's just a charming guy. I want to know what about this class of people? And I would at at times in my life have counted myself a one of. I'm so out of shape. I can't bike. I, I, this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to make a fool out of myself. This is a joke. This isn't for me. I'm not the, I'm not a spandex guy. I'm not going to wear a helmet and mess up my hair. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, getting those people to, to step one. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's a really, really good point because, you know, every journey starts with that first step, right? And so you've got to be able to, you know, meet people with, you know, where they're at. And, and it's part of the reason why it's so important that we get away from the, the, the fights that we, you know, so often get into and, and, and it's us versus them and it's a, this ugly shouting match, et cetera. That just doesn't help. I mean, it needs to be, you know, we need to be putting forth uh, as advocates of a new lifestyle of what we think is a, a better, healthier lifestyle for everyone and safer, most, most definitely, is, is to be out there and presenting, you know, a, a positive image of what it is. And so, you know, there's various programs. I mean, from a software perspective, there are many programs throughout, you know, cities all around that are saying, you know, hey, let's get you walking, you know, let's, let's just get you off the couch. Let's get you moving. Let's, you know, get you out there. And, um, and being able to meet people where they're at in terms of their comfort level and bring them along with that. And honestly, sometimes, Chuck, sometimes it's the kids yeah. that help bring their parents oh, along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know exactly what I'm saying. I, there's no doubt. Yes. Stella's like, yeah. we are biking to school, Dad. I'm like, okay, we're biking to school. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it, it's as simple as, you know, you know, I know we're primarily talking about biking, but, you know, it, it could be like, you know, a couch to 5K encouragement program that gets people moving. And then once people are moving, then other opportunities start opening up. And, 
and I know you, this kind of resonates with you as well because I know you're, you're, you're tracking your steps too and you're walking as much as you can trying to get more steps in. That's definitely part of the software picture. But the software picture is more than just, you know, education and encouragement activities. It's, it also goes all, stretches all the way to policy. It's like, what does the city consider when, you know, what's the blueprint as to how we're going to do things? Are we going to start addressing our destructive zoning approach at things? Are we going to start addressing what our, you know, our minimum speed limits are? And are we going to start embracing, you know, a concept of, of you know, considering, you know, uh, safe and inviting all ages and abilities, facilities, whenever we build a new street, whether you call that a complete streets policy or whatever, and fully knowing that you and I hate the concept of a complete street applied to a road or a stroke, because then you just have a complete disaster. Unless, you know, they use that policy to say, yeah, we've got to cobble enough money together through what, however we're doing this to do it right. And if that means this is an unsafe environment to put a, a, a person, you know, an eight-year-old on a bike, then let's figure out, how, you know, what we can do, whether it is a side path or an alternate route or use that money, you know, to be able to, you know, do a creekside, you know, pathway that connects to the elementary school, which connects to the downtown, which connects to, you know, the, the uh, you know, the, the residential areas, et cetera. And, you know, even better, fix those zoning laws so that we have less of that designation of separated areas where you know people are, are going longer distances, traveling longer distances. So yeah, those are all parts of software. It's the policies, it's the programs, it's the um, the signature events that that encourage more people to get out, like a turkey trot, you know, or a community bike ride. So yeah, so that's that's all part of the policy and or the programming, which is the software as well as what we were just talking about earlier in terms of how do you engage the public in a more meaningful manner to get them, you know, active in making decisions about what their environment will look like, what their communities will look like in the future. That's software. Let's say that I'm a person who has moved to a new neighborhood. Let's even say, just hypothetically speaking, that I'm like a conservative, kind of introverted Minnesotan type of person. But I really enjoy biking and walking, and I would really love to, if more of my neighbors felt comfortable biking and walking, what, what would you say a person like that, some things they could do to not running for council, not changing laws, not getting grants, just normal everyday behavior? What kind of things can people do to create a culture of biking and walking in their neighborhood? Do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Get out there, do it, do it conspicuously. I think that was the word that I used in 2013 with you is do it in such a way that, you know, people notice and, you know, you wave and, and you're, you're, you're out there enjoying it. So that's kind of the daily thing. Invite a friend, you know, engage somebody else, you know, somebody who, you know, is, you know, suffering from high blood pressure or, you know, or is stressed out, et cetera. Take them for a walk, take them for a bike ride, make it enjoyable. You know, don't take some, don't drag somebody out in an environment where you may feel comfortable, but suddenly that you, you realize, Oh my gosh, this is scaring the living daylights out of them. Make it a, make it a pleasurable experience. And then, you know, from a, uh, less frequent, you know, not so much of a daily thing, but start getting engaged, start caring, 
Um, it's sort of the double entendre that I think of when I think of active towns is, yeah, you're, you're physically active. You're out there, you know, it, living an active lifestyle. But in doing that and doing so conspicuously, you're, you're integrating and, and you're, um, you are having the opportunity to, um, you know, socialize with other people and things of that nature. So you're starting to also become active socially. And that can easily lead to that engagement aspect of get involved and speak up, you know, at open houses and community meetings and, you know, when, when it's appropriate, you know, when things start coming up in terms of bonds and, and political things of saying, no, this really does matter to us. We want to slow down the traffic speeds in our neighborhood or we want access to safe and inviting activity assets, including pools, parks, rec centers, pathways, and safe streets, streets as places. I've got two questions for you to finish up. The first one is, do you always wear a helmet or are there times when you do and times when you don't? Generally, when I'm commuting, I I do not. Uh, I'm going eight blocks to the grocery store. I'm going, you know, half a mile to work. Stella does, but I, I don't. Um, but if I'm going like a long ride, like I'm going to, you know, bike 10 miles, 20 miles, you know, more, I will put on a helmet. Tell me your reaction and, and, and what your kind of approach is. Um, so my, my approach is more of a pragmatic approach in the sense that, it, well, just as an example, um, I've been on, I don't know, 20 bike rides this week already and it's only Wednesday <laughs> the, the, the beauty of, of going back and forth to the conference and coming back for a lunch and then heading back to the conference again I haven't worn a helmet yet so it's a, it's a two mile trip but it's very much in the context of I know that my route is taking me on a whole wonderful complex network of routes and, and I think it's worth talking about the route um, just after I say this but I know that it's it's a as a relatively safe route. I will be on some streets where I share the lane with a car, and I do have a protected bike lane, both concrete, you know, curb protected as well as protected with um, with parked cars, all the way to the convention center and back. So I, I haven't been I haven't felt the need. But every single time I'm on my racing bike, and I know I'm going to be traveling myself at speeds in excess of what my body is designed <laughs> to, to handle if I crash, if I fall down, I'm absolutely wearing my helmet. And I have had a high-speed crash in the past where you know a car has you know, T-boned me in an intersection where I was traveling at in excess of 25 miles per hour and he was traveling in excess of 25 miles per hour and I was lucky to live. So I understand the value I also understand the value of me walking down, getting on the B-cycle bike, riding on the little trail that, you know, is outside of our um, uh, little dirt trail outside of our condo here, which is a feeder link to the main recreation trail that goes around Lady Bird Lake. I ride that for about, you know, two-tenths of a mile, get onto the, the, the Fluger bike and pedestrian bridge and go over that, which gets us to the other side of the lake. I'm able to, you know, get onto a, a paved multi-use path that leads me to a, a quiet street. Go up that quiet street. I feel comfortable. Most people aren't, aren't, are behaving themselves as, as they're driving through there. 
before I know it, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on, you know, a wonderful downtown facility, which is, you know, a, you know, protected, you know, facility, a protected bike lane, I'm able to go there. So it has to be something that it's a personal decision, Chuck. It has to be something that's based on your skill base, your level of comfort, and where you're at. I'm not a fundamentalist. I don't tell everybody. I don't shout at people, hey, you should be wearing your helmet. Um, I didn't even take my helmet to Europe. I traveled with my folding bike. And so, you know, I rode around Europe for an entire month and didn't even have a helmet with me. Was that pretty common over there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and it it varies based on, on, on where you're at. I mean, in... In Amsterdam, I would say, you know, I hardly saw any helmets whatsoever. In Copenhagen, I saw a few more. Um, in Switzerland, uh, a lot more. In Germany, France, more. But, you know, it, it really depends. I never felt unsafe, but I also had, I did really careful route planning. And if I did find myself in an environment where I did not feel comfortable, given my level of vulnerability, and check my words there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I got off that route. I, you know, I, you know, took the lane or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't want to stay there and have my exposure be any longer than it needed to be. I found a better route. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Final question. And yeah. I want you to, I want you to limit yourself to North America. Yep. Uh, there, there's somebody listening here today Maybe they're, you know, retiree or near retiree. Maybe they're a, a young person who's not attached to a specific place who is saying, I really would like to live a lifestyle where I can, I can bike. And I want to not only live that lifestyle, I want to actually move to the best biking places in the U.S. Give me a list. And if you can, you know, big city, small town. Give me a list of the top maybe two or three, or if you must more, places that, that you have come across, because you've been all over the place doing this stuff, uh, that you would recommend that somebody check out. Um, I would say that, that it, you first have to decide on, obviously, the type of environment that you wish to be in. So if somebody were to tell me, look, I'm from Minnesota, and I really want to stay in Minnesota and I want to be able to live out the rest of my life and be able to walk (laughs) and bike. Why would someone do that? (laughs) They might. Hey, Uh, Minnesota is a wonderful place. And here's, you know, the kicker. Minneapolis is rated one of the most bike friendly cities in in the entire country. It's fantastic. Why? Because, you know, if you happen to live, you know, in that core area, you have a tremendous, you know, suite of, of, assets there that are bike-friendly assets, including lots of, of trails and pathways, lots of bike lanes. And the thing that, that I try to reemphasize a lot is that when we have a good gridded system, um, you can find lots of slow-speed, quiet residential streets that can take you to your ultimate destinations and not be mixing it up with the buses and the, and, 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 you know, the, the, the traffic, et cetera. Yeah. Minneapolis, we do tend to, Minneapolis, planners, year, we do tend, yeah. you, you know, yeah. Minneapolis year round, I'll note, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people do cycle, believe it or not. I mean, it, it is, it is amazing that, it, and I've proven this, we don't melt when we get wet in the rain 
And when it gets cold out, if we wear appropriate clothing, we can do amazing things. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to first figure out, okay, what, what's the environment that you go, you know, you, that is really, really floating your boat. And then from there, it's, there's a lot of really, really good things happening. And I think that's what I would like to say, rather than picking favorites, you know, and saying, oh, well, you know, hey, Boulder, you know, and, you know, et cetera. Is, tell, me, is, tell, yeah. me, tell me a place that surprised you then. Where you where you had low expectations, and were your expectations were exceeded? I will tell you from a biking standpoint. For me, I'll throw Pittsburgh out there. And Pittsburgh is this eastern, you know, steel town. I, I was expecting very, you know, blue collar. No, I just thought it would be all about running big semis through the middle of the place. And I was I was blown away. By how nice it was, first of all, but then second of all, you know, you, you can really do some great biking there. Well, I, I see your your Pittsburgh and raise you a Buffalo, yeah, and a Detroit, yeah. I, I, and but you see, there, there's a common theme going there too. Is these are all places that you know, you know, hit in the case of Detroit, rock bottom, and are coming back around. So during the week that I was in Detroit for um, for CNU this past year. Um, you know, I, I stayed in Airbnb over in Corktown and rode my, you know, my folding bike you know, over to the, the conference venue sites, uh, every day. And it was just absolutely delightful. So yeah, that is surprising. I mean, and that's what I, I guess that's the point that, that, that I would like to make in kind of a closing comment is that there's some really wonderful things happening out there right now. And many, many cities, even small cities, even Brainerd, Minnesota, is out there trying to transform the environment to be more people-oriented and to be more like a strong town. And in doing so, they're going to be more like an active town as well. And I think what we have to do is not get so fundamental and, and get into these fights of talking about bikes and bike lanes as much as saying, you know, hey, let's take a step back. Let's engage the community. Let's find out what our common denominators are of commonalities. And it's usually going to be, hey, how can we make our community, our, our, our residential areas, our business districts safer, more inviting, more successful, more vibrant? And it almost always means you need to make it more attractive for people. Do that then you can be more creative in terms of what that actually looks like in terms of is there a bike lane or is it a shared space or you know whatever it may be. John Zimmerman, you can find him at activetowns.org. Uh, get a hold of him. He does the Active Towns tour. Uh, you can contact John. He'll come to your town. He'll come and give a talk at your place. I've spoken with him at conferences. He, uh, he has a great, great presentation, gets everybody excited about this stuff. And it's, as you've heard the last hour, it's very accessible. John, I love you, man. You, you're a great guy and I love what you're doing. And I just thank you. you know, anytime I run into someone who is passionate about it, it, the, the pursuit that they're doing, it's like I found a kindred spirit and I, I just love spending time with them. So, so thank you for all you do and, and thanks for chatting with me. Hey, Chuck, thank you so much. And, and likewise, right back at you. And, and I know I'm going to be seeing you here real soon. You're going to be in Austin on uh, October 26th. <laughs> I am. I can't, wait to, I can't wait to see you. That sounds great. Thank you, sir. You bet. I Take appreciate care. it. Bye-bye. Okay. Aloha.
And thanks, everybody, for listening to Strong Towns. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.